Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. So as we look to 2023, uh, I'd like to take us on a journey over the next uh, several weeks together, actually out of one passage of Scripture, uh, one verse of Scripture, which is uh, out of Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 4, and we'll get to reading that here in just a little bit. Uh, over the last uh, few, several several months, uh, we walk through the book of Ephesians uh, together and understood Paul's main emphasis in the book of Ephesians uh, to be upon the unity of the church. You and I must fight for the unity of the church. We must fight to be in unity and in one accord with one uh, another. We must actually do battle for that walking in holiness, walking in purity, praying that God would humble our hearts. And the Apostle Paul spoke to us very clearly about the spiritual battle that we must be fighting in order to preserve, uh, seek, honor, love, unity in the church. Over the last more recent uh, weeks, we have uh, walked through the uh, Advent series, traditional themes of Advent, of hope and peace and joy and love. And our brother Noel uh, shared with us uh, on last Christmas Day on the emphasis of the coming of Christ. And so over the next several weeks, what I would like us to do is focus on what I believe the Lord has called us as a people uh, to focus our attention towards, not just in 2023, but who we are to be as a people. And so what uh, I pray and hope for today is that we set the stage for what is uh, to come over the next few weeks, so about what it means for you and I to not just be united together, but what it means for us to be united in mission, united in mission, pursuing something as a cause for Christ in our community and in the kingdom. If we think back over the last few years, uh, what many of us would think about is uh, the pandemic and the thought of sickness and death, and probably it's not many of us within this congregation who were not touched by it in one way or another. Or to think back even over the last year or so, we think about war that has even impacted our own nation. We think about natural disasters and famines that continue to impact people all over the world. This doesn't mention even the personal toll that happens on you and I as costs for our everyday living begin uh, to increase and the ability to put even the basic things on the table can be a strain for many and the situation in which our world finds itself in is not simply an issue that's happening out there that we hear about on the news. It's actually an issue that we hear about within the context of the, even the gathered fellowship at this place. 
What's going on in the world is no longer what we simply read about in the morning in the newspaper or we flip on the news or we scroll through on the internet, things that are happening out there. It's actually things that are happening out there that impact what's going on right here. That's impacting what's going on in my home and in your home. And when we begin to see these things and think about these things and we, and we see the plagues and we see the death and we see war and we see famine and we see our resources being diminished, we may begin to ask the question, where is the hope? Where is the hope in our day? If we walk through the Advent season and we think about hope and peace and joy and love and the joy that Christ brings and we get to 2023, we may begin asking ourselves, where is the hope? Where is the hope in this world? And where is the hope in my own life? If we look at Isaiah chapter 12, the context of that passage is important for us to examine. Isaiah prophesied uh, around 739 to 681 B.C to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Instead of serving the Lord with humility and offering love and kindness to their neighbors, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices in God's temple at Jerusalem and committed injustices throughout the nation. The people of Judah had turned their back on the Lord. They had alienated themselves from him. And this created the need for Isaiah as a prophet to enter into the scene and pronounce judgment upon the nation for turning their backs on the Lord. Isaiah's prophecies of judgment were not simply to condemn the people, but they were also to say there is a hope that is to come. If we were to read through the book of Isaiah, what we find is that we get one of the most comprehensive pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in the prophetic literature. So we get in Isaiah, we get a true picture of Jesus Christ coming. We hear about his virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7, the proclamation that he will make of the good news in Isaiah 61 his sacrificial death in Isaiah 52 and 53, his return to claim his own people in Isaiah 60. Many other texts in Isaiah point us to the supremacy and the work of Christ. And it stands as not just a book of prophetic judgment, but also a book of hope. Chapter 12 gives us a very clear theme of the book. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Out of Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. Judah, because of their rebellion against the Lord, had come under the discipline or chastisement of the Lord. They had been conquered by the nation of Babylon. Their hope in God's plan had waned as they sought comfort and peace in the idols of the surrounding nations. I think often it's a picture that's not unlike 
where we find ourselves in the church today. We find some churches that have been long-term worshiping communities that have fallen into liberalism. They embrace doctrines that are not part of Scripture, that are made up by men in order to appease people's ears and appease people's hearts. Or we also find ourselves on the other side where burdens are put upon people that are way too heavy for them to bear, which the people in the pulpit don't bear themselves. And preaching so hard that people walk away and they think, how can I ever measure up to what God wants? The pendulum swings both ways. Going all the way to say God doesn't care who you are, where you are, where you've been, and in a sense God doesn't until you come to him. And when he comes to you, he says, be ye holy for I am holy. Come as you are. But then as you come to Christ, there should be a movement toward holiness. When I was in seminary, my alma mater, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was born out of a passion for the Lord, was born out of a desire to train ministers for the gospel, to go out and to, to preach the gospel, to share the message of hope. And by the time of the early 90s, the seminary had turned to where professors would refuse to sign a document that said the Bible is inspired of the Lord and inerrant. See, we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. We believe that as they were originally delivered to those who wrote them, that they are inerrant, without error. We believe that the Scriptures are authoritative. This gives us the understanding for how we should live day by day, how we should live in community with one another. Imagine that in the early 90s, one of the largest seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention, that you have professors who would not even sign a statement that says that the Bible is authoritative, that the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is inspired. And so a young seminary president at 33 years of age came on the scene and he forced the issue, and he said, if you're going to train ministers, if you're going to teach ministers, if you're going to develop ministers who are to go out and to preach the gospel, you have to believe in the authority of Scripture. You have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You have to believe that this is the inspired Word of God. And about 49 professors walked out on him because they refused to sign the statement. But what it began was a turning back a turning back to the ways of the Lord, a turning back to the instruction of the Lord, a turning back to the things of the Lord. Sometimes things move so far that there is a need for reformation. In the idea or the realm of, of politics was Thomas Jefferson, who we don't honor as a great theologian. But Thomas Jefferson did say, that the tree of liberty must be from time to time watered by the blood of tyrants and patriots. That from time to time there has to be a fight. From time to time there has to be a battle in order to secure what we say we're willing to die for. What we say we're willing to commit our lives for. I believe that God desires 
that there be a righteous remnant. I believe that's what he's been stirring in our community. I believe that's what he's stirring in our hearts. When we say we long for something, we're longing after the righteousness of the Lord. And when we look at what is going on in Isaiah chapter 12, I think there are three areas that we could point ourselves to or focus ourselves towards to gain a better understanding of what the Lord may speak to us in our day. That in this passage there is a remnant, There's a reaction by that remnant, and then there is a promised redemption. A remnant, a reaction, and a redemption. First, the remnant. Israel had been gathered, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says, from all over the earth. It says, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. God is going to gather who will remain, his people who will remain. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. And will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Because of Judah's rebellion against the Lord, the Lord had sold them under the Babylonian bondage. And they had been spread out all over the earth. And there's a promise that God is going to bring back a righteous remnant. The people have been splintered and they have been scattered all over the earth. And we see this was a direct result because they were unfaithful. Prior to this, when they were faithful, they were united together. They weren't, it's interesting to note, they weren't simply united together kind of as an ethnic people, but they were also united together where they lived on a piece of geography. Corporately together. But yet, when they began to desire the things of the world, when they began to desire uh, the, 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 the ways of the nations around them, they became unfaithful. And they splintered. Because sin is always at the root of splintering. We must be careful when we're tempted to splinter. The gospel brings together. But the enemy pushes apart. We have to be careful. God is calling for a faithful church in the present age. Just as he desired a faithful people In the days of Isaiah, he desires a faithful church in our age. In light of this, we have to ask the question, what does a faithful church look like? Or what does a faithful remnant look like today? A few things that I would think among maybe others. A faithful church believes in the deity and supremacy of Christ. Colossians tells us that Jesus is God and he's the creator of things and he is over all things. We believe in a firm Christ substitutionary atonement. He took our place on the cross. We've talked about this in the recent past. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was dead in the tomb, and on the third day, life returned to his body, and he rose again. We believe there is one God, yet three persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe that a faithful church preaches the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
We believe that a faithful church is a gospel witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ. We will go and we will send to every nation, tribe, and tongue speaking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I think it's important that we bring up a cohort of young people to the front and have prayer over them because I believe there are some in that group of people that God is speaking to that you are to go and tell. You may be a worship leader. You may be behind the pulpit. Maybe God is calling you to get on a plane and to fly to another country and be on the front lines where the gospel hasn't yet been preached. Maybe your ability is in a language and the ability to go into a culture and develop a sense of fellowship with that culture and begin to learn the language in order to translate the scriptures in a way in which it hasn't been done before that a people can actually have the word of God in their own language. Maybe it's for you to get on a plane and fly somewhere and see how another people live, that when you get home after two or three weeks, you pray and you intercede as never before, that the power of God will be manifest among that people. We have to go and tell. Faithful church is committed to the same work that the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the earth, sharing the gospel Discipling believers, seeing people full of the power of the Holy Spirit, as was evidence in Acts chapter 2. The faithful church believes these things, is committed to these things, preaches these things, teaches these things, lives these things, and acts upon these things. These are the doctrines of the faith for which we must be willing to give our lives. And it is those who believe these things and stand firm upon these things and maybe some others that we would put together to say, I am willing to give my life for these things. It is those who will be the faithful remnant. I was teaching a class of Bible college students and uh, also advising students in terms of uh, classes that they should uh, take in order to complete their degree uh, program. And I had someone that was a part of a pastoral ministry uh, program. And as we were kind of working through her schedule, she said, uh, I don't want to take any more theology classes. I hate theology. I thought, that's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, I, I know it may not be the thing that you want to jump and shout about, and I know it may kind of sometimes feel like you're getting in the weeds a little bit, but theology is what helps us know what I'm willing to take a bullet for. That's the way I try to think about it. I'm going to fight for things I'll take a bullet for. There are some things I'm not going to fight very hard about. But when it comes to Jesus' substitutionary atonement, if I have to deny that, I'll take a bullet first. When it comes to the understanding of the Trinity, if I have to deny that, I'll take a bullet first. When it comes to Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man and somehow in God's mysterious grace and power coming and dying upon that tree and rising on the third day, if I have to deny that, I'll take a bullet first. I'm not going to take a bullet over what color the chairs are. I'm not going to take a bullet on what day of the week you think we should worship on. 
I'm not going to take a bullet on the songs we sing. I'm not going to take a bullet on a whole lot of things. But there's a select group of things as it relates to the scriptures and the lordship of Jesus Christ that I will take a bullet for. I pray God would help me in that day, would it ever come, to be strong and courageous and brave and to do what's necessary. Because there's some things as a believer that you've got to be willing to give your whole life for if the time were to come. That's the righteous remnant. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, if you, not, not, if you don't read it right now during the sermon, but when you get home later on, uh, chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, there's a story of Athaliah uh, and Jehoiada and Jehoash. And Jehoiada was the high priest of the day. And there was a wicked queen, Athaliah, who was not supposed to be on the throne, but had usurped the throne. And she started to rule when she wasn't supposed to rule. And the scripture tells us in that passage that what she did was, in order to secure her place, she began killing all of her grandchildren who would be in line to the throne. So imagine someone so power-hungry that she begins killing all of the royal offspring. And so a young lady named Jehoshaphat sees this beginning to transpire and steals away a young child, uh, Jehoash, steals him away and hide him in the temple under the leadership of Jehoiada, who's the high priest of the time. So for about six or seven years, he's hidden away in the temple. And think about this. Everyone thought the line of David had been extinguished because all the grandchildren had been murdered. Everyone thought that the promise of God to no longer come to pass because the royal lineage had been extinguished. And yet all the while, with just a few select people knowing, inside the temple, was growing the promise of God. So apply it to your own life when you think it's dead and never going to come about, that the promise that God has spoken to you can never happen, that the voice that you've heard in that time of prayer, in that time of intercession, when you think it can never be restored to you, know that God is a God of restoration. And God always has a plan. And as we've sung the song in times past, sometimes when you don't see it, God continues to work. And sometimes when you don't feel it, God continues to work. What you and I must do is have faith in the promises of God. And so in the temple, the young boy was growing. And at the right time, at the right time, the high priest set him out, and the Levites were in array, and he reached back to the Davidic order, and he pulled the weapons of warfare that David had used in times past, and he sets the young boy out, and they begin to proclaim, long live the king, long live the king, and God's promise is restored because there was a righteous remnant that had been left. Like Jehoiada, 
We must keep God's law by understanding God's law. We must be a people of the Word, a people who are in the book, who are full of the Spirit. He knew who was to be the righteous king. He knew what the law said. He knew what was supposed to happen. And he followed God's plan. We must also be willing to reach back as he did and take hold of the ancient weapons of our warfare. He literally went in the storehouse and got the weapons that David had used to defend the kingdom and brought them out to defend against the usurper Athaliah. Like Jehoiada, we must also recognize that God has people that he has put in place according to his will. Jehoiada was the priest. He knew he couldn't be the king, but there was one who needed to be the king. And it was his role to help set that king in place. And I believe this is also why Hebrews 10 and 25 is so key to our effectiveness as a body to becoming that righteous remnant. When a member of the body forsakes the assembling of ourselves together, there are key people who are missing from the execution of God's plan. And God is glorified in this local body and in the kingdom when we gather together and we're investing in areas that he has called us to for his glory. The foundation for revival and restoration is a righteous remnant. The righteous remnant in Isaiah has a reaction. When the prophetic word is given in Isaiah chapter 11 that the remnant of Judah will be restored, there is a hymn of praise in Isaiah chapter 12 regarding what has been prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. And I think this prophecy speaks to us as well. I'd like to read to you a bit in chapter 12. On that day, verse 1, when the restoration comes, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously, joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, verse 4, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. And make them remember that his name is exalted. A righteous remnant realizes that what they have gone through, that some of the challenges that existed in the world around them, that some of the things that they had to face was actually the Lord's chastisement to draw them back to him. That the purpose of God's chastisement is for restoration, and God chastises those whom he, whom he loves and they will trust and not be afraid, for they know that God is their salvation, and God is working for their good, even in his punishment. And we get to verse 4, and we see the actions of those who are called together. Worship, give thanks unto the Lord. Prayer, call upon his name. Proclamation, make known his deeds among the people. And legacy, Make them remember, not forget, that his name is 
exalted. Every one of these are words of action. Words of action of a righteous remnant. A future of hope for God to restore. You see, God has not called us to be a sedentary church. He's not called us to simply be a people who just come together and leave and come together and leave and come together and leave. God has called us to be a moving church forward for his glory. Now, how do we often think of that? I will tell you how preachers most often think of that. Is preachers most often think of that in terms of seats in the chair. We're moving forward if there's more people sitting in the seats. I'm happy for this church to grow. I desire for it to grow numerically. I desire for people to come. I desire for people to be a part of what's happening because I think you are a welcoming, loving, kind, and gracious people. And I've heard it hundreds of times when people say, I'll walk through the door and I just felt a presence of the Lord and the love of his people. I want more people to experience that. But I don't think that's what this future is going to be about for us. What this future is going to be about for us is God producing in this church a righteous remnant. What's most important is not the amount of people in the seat. What's most important is the righteousness of those who are in the seat already. What's most important is that you and I have a heart of love for the Lord and a heart of pursuit for him. What's most important is that our affections are set upon the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Yes, Yes, we'd love to fill the seat. Yes, we'd love for more people to hear the message. Yes, that's wonderful and that's great. But what God wants to produce in us in 2023 and beyond is a heart of righteousness, a heart of love, a heart that is like the Lord Jesus Christ, a heart that is full of his Holy Spirit, a moving in us and stirring within us that moves away from the things of the world and toward the things of God. Less of me, more of him. Less of what I want, more of what he wants. Less of what I I desire more of what he desires. This is why as we set out on 2023, we want to be a people of the word. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people of fasting and seeking him, saying, I'm willing to push back the plate. Now, I know a lot of times in the January fast that a lot of churches do, they'll say, okay, you can fast the, the, the internet, or you can fast chocolate, or you can uh, fast broccoli. That's not the kind of fast I'm asking you to go on this year. That's not the kind of fast I'm asking the Lord to help me with. I'll tell you, I don't like to fast. I'm not excited about it in the sense of I like to eat. But I think as much as it is within me, the plate has to be pushed back in order to pursue the things of God because there's something I need more than food. Jesus said to his disciples, I've got things to eat that you don't know about. And I pray that in 2023, we're a people that feast on his word and it produces within us a righteous remnant that moves us to action for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfully laboring in hope of the restoration and revival that is to come. I believe God is stirring and bringing revival. I believe that God is moving, that God is transforming, that God is doing a work. And it will be the righteous remnant that receives it. Isaiah 14, 
long passage. I thought about reading it. I'll just highlight a few pieces of it. It talks about the broken yoke of Babylon, the time when redemption comes. So the remnant of people who are moving in a reaction to what God has said, moving in hope, laboring in hope, to the time of redemption that Isaiah 14 talks about. Isaiah 14 tells what will happen when the yoke of bondage, the shackles of Babylon, are released off of God's people. It says, Israel will taunt the nation of Babylon. That which was once a heavy yoke of bondage will be the subject of ridicule by the mouths of those whom it oppressed. The last two verses of that passage. The Lord says, I will rise up against them, Babylon, the oppressor, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. In the same manner, the satanic stronghold that is, seems to be upon the earth will be broken. As Israel was oppressed by the Babylonians, so today it seems that there are so many oppressed by the satanic hordes. So many people struggling, so many people walking in the ways of the world when they desire to be in the ways of righteousness. And the Lord gives you hope this morning to say there will come a day when as someone sweeps with a broom, the Lord will sweep with the broom of destruction the oppressors of his people. Revelation 20 and 10 affirms that the devil who deceived them, who deceived the church, who deceived God's people, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The challenge, the trial, the difficulty, the, the, the demons that you seem to be facing and you're struggling against, it will not last forever. The grace and the glory of God will come. The grace and power of God will deliver you. There is coming a time when God will set the world right and his people will live in freedom from the previous bondage. Hear me, that day is coming. In your darkest moment of despair, lift up your head to know that God will destroy the works of Satan. Families will be set right again. Hearts will once again yearn for the work of the Lord. God will call the remnant out of bondage. And our hope that we desire in the scriptures, what we read about, what we hear about, what we talk about, our hope will become sight. I believe the Lord is stirring his remnant to a revival of hope turning again to the things of the Lord. Stand with me as we come to a time of prayer this morning. And we ask the Lord to visit us. Heavenly Father, we pray in these next few moments what I have sought to do in a way in which 
I can only do humanly, Lord. You have to accomplish the work in the Spirit. I'm unable to do that. However inadequate I have taken what you put in the heart today, given it words to this people, Lord, you are able in a moment to do by the Spirit, Lord Jesus, a working out of your gracious glory and plan. God, I pray today that those who are here this morning would long to be that righteous remnant. The seedbed of revival. Walking faithfully before you. Earnestly seeking after you. Lord, I pray today that those of us who read your word and we see that to the righteous remnant there is a promised restoration. That there, our reaction to that would be to, to work towards it. To know there's a promise, a hope ahead of us so we would live in light of that hope. We would live in light of that work which you have promised but, yet, but which we yet to see with our own eyes. As we're part of the righteous remnant, we would labor faithfully for ourselves, for our church, for the kingdom, working towards the hope of the promise. Knowing that one day there will be a restoration. That though we exist in the tension of what is and what is to come, there is coming a day when the trump of God will sound. There is coming a day when the sky will be rolled back as a scroll. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. I pray, Father, that as we come through the journey Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all of the preparation and all of the thinking and all of the gift giving and all of the celebrations with people and gatherings together of family and friends. Lord, that as today on the first day of a new year that we would commit ourselves once again to the precepts of your word, the doctrines of the faith, focus on prayer, to be a person of the Spirit, to live and walk and move in the power of the Spirit, to be a person of hope, to not be caught up in the ways of this world, but to move in power and anointing for your glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you today
We ask you, Lord, to convince us and convict us to that call of righteousness, a call of action, a call of hope. Move by your Spirit this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray.